I don't want to talk about politics today. Uh, I'm going to tell you that the way that you can celebrate this theoretical hopeful maybe win for uh, things that the three of us consider good and right in the world and democracy in general. Uh, the way you can celebrate that, obviously, is with capitalism. So we should tell you that the ATP store's back, baby. <laughs> ATP.fm slash store. This is going to be the last... You're the master of self-serving transitions. <laughs> it's, I, hey, it's, it's what I'm here for. Uh, so anyway, ATP store is back. ATP.fm slash store. It will be back until the 14th of November ATP time. That is... Uh, not this upcoming Saturday, if you're listening to this near real time, but it is a week from Saturday, the 14th of November. The reason we did this is because we hope, but do not guarantee that those in the U S will get this stuff before the holidays hope, but not guarantee. Uh, so what do we got going on here? We've got, uh, an update to the monochrome pro max shirts. John, would you do me the pleasure please of explaining what these are and what's different? Sure. This is the uh, shirt we have that has silhouettes of all the different Pro Max over the years. Not all of them, but some of the different Pro Max over the years. Uh, the original one was a six-color, well, originally a five-color design with the Apple colors, and then eventually became a six-color design when the 2019 Mac Pro was released. Um, and we also had, went back when it was a, a five-Mac design, um, a line art version of that, where it's instead of them being colored silhouettes, they're little line line drawings of them, and they're actually also a little bit more to scale. Um, so we updated the, the monochrome version of that shirt with line art that features the new Mac Pro. So now both of our Pro Max shirts have six Macs on them, and the monochrome one is for sale for the first time. So check that out. Yep. And as with before, you can do with or without wheels. Uh, wheels, as they should, run you an extra $4. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> so we've got the monochrome pro max shirt with or without wheels. We've got the standard six colors, ATP shirt. We've got the ATP hat. We've got the ATP embroidered zip hoodie, which is excellent in particular. I very much like that. Uh, so you've got about 10 more days as we record this to uh, go and get your merch atp.fm slash store. You will hear this one more time and I have to, it's required by the contract between the three of us. I have to tell you, Every single time we have a sale, I make the same speech. <laughs> Listeners, please go and do the order now. Visualize where you're going to be if you're driving, which nobody is because we can't leave. Or if you're walking, which <laughs> not many people do because we can't leave. Or if you're doing anything, just visualize where you will be at that future time and visualize yourself going to atp.fm slash store. And so you're not the person that tweets at me two minutes after the store closes saying, oh, when does the store close? I think I might have missed it. So don't be that person, please. If you're going to, if you're going to buy stuff, do it now. If you don't want to buy stuff, that's fine. That's totally fine. But if you're going to buy stuff, do it now. Celebrate capitalism because that's the American way. ATP.FM slash store. And speaking of capitalism, let's start some follow-up. Uh, so it's so funny uh, being a host on the show because there are times that I genuinely just miss the plot on something and I don't even consider something. And then there's times that I think, well, what about this thing? No, that can't be it. And, and I don't say anything. And then the entire internet comes to say, hey, 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 did you know about that thing? So, listeners, yes, I am aware of the National Radio Quiet Zone. Thank you for <laughs> reminding me. I am well aware of it. And actually, anyone who told me, hey, have you heard of the National Radio Quiet Zone? You have now received demerits. You want to know why? Because if you really were a Casey completionist, you would have known that months ago, I was on the Delightful Fun Fact podcast with our friends, and, and I was 
uh, the, the whole premise of the show is to talk about fun facts. And uh, if memory serves, I was with Alan filling in for Arik. And guess what my fun fact was? The National Radio Quiet Zone. So, yes, I'm aware of it. If you're not aware of it, however, it is, it is very funny and very interesting. Uh, it's this big swath of land, basically on the West Virginia-Virginia border, that um, ostensibly in certain, well, in, in the entire swath of land, ostensibly, you're not really allowed to have like cell phone coverage, but realistically, there's like a town or a section or something like that. It's been a while since I've spoken about it, um, where it's really, really locked down. You can't have portable phones, you can't have cell phones, you can't have radios. And that's because they have these extremely large and complicated um, radio telescopes on these mountaintops over in West Virginia. So that's why some people have said, well, maybe that's why Verizon has this huge dead area in between West Virginia and Virginia. And yeah, I buy that in principle. But if you look at the two maps, which I put links in the show notes, maybe if Marco is kind, he'll put them in the chapter art. But um, if you look at the two maps side by side, the difference between the AT&T map and the Verizon map is still pretty stark in my personal opinion. So I, I do agree that that might be the National Radio Quiet Zone might be the difference or might be that might be the issue there. But geez, it still seems like there's a big difference between AT&T and Verizon. Also, you should all be Casey completionists. What the hell is wrong with you? Uh, John, I'm sorry about your bottom. Yeah, as uh, as I feared and <laughs> as I expected, the Apple leather case for the new line of iPhones does indeed cover the bottom of the phone. So that's not going to help me with my bottom covering issues. Um, the good news for Marco, maybe, is that uh, there is a Apple leather case available for the Mini as well. Uh, something that they hadn't done in the past for their for the SE and the other small phones. So. If Marco doesn't mind the bottom cover, he can try out the Apple leather case. As for me, I've ordered a couple of third-party leather cases that don't cover the bottom of the phone, and I will report back in when they show up and I try them out. Okay, just to get ahead of all the feedback, are you willing to put links in the show notes, or would you rather wait until you have received them before you even link to them? Because you know that we're going to get asked. Yeah, no, I'm intentionally not telling you which ones. You know why? Because why would you buy a case that I haven't even told you was any good yet? Like, if you care about my opinion, <laughs> then wait to hear my opinion. If you don't care about my opinion, just buy the leather case you want to buy. Like, there's a million of them, right? So, no links, no names. In fact, I don't even remember which two I bought. There was, like, seven of them that I had open in tabs. Um, what I can tell you about is... You? The one, no. Yeah. The one, the, <laughs> and I love it. I, uh, I left that window open uh, for, so when they arrive, I'll remember which one I bought, I guess. I guess I looked through my receipts. Anyway, my criteria was leather, mostly kind of like the Apple leather case, so no real textured leather that looks like rumply ostrich skin or whatever. Like just, you know, you, if you've seen what the Apple leather case look like, uh, especially the black ones, they're very sort of uniform grain. So as close to that as I can get, open on the bottom, you know, thin like Apple's leather cases are. Uh, lays looks like it lets the phone lay fat, flat on the table so it evens out the camera bump um, fits the 12 pro obviously and uh, metal buttons or plastic metal or plastic buttons that stick out from the leather like what i didn't want were the leather lump buttons and so many really good looking cases had leather lumps where it's a leather case and then the buttons for volume and power are just like lumps in the leather but aren't themselves like there's no cutout for the buttons or anything it's just kind of like a lumpy part and i've had apple's other case used to be like that i had apple's other case that was like that do not like the leather lumps so either two cases with metal and or plastic buttons both of them black both of them leather both of them open on the bottom i will report back and then when i report back i will give you links including even if i don't like them then i'll give you links so then you just know what i'm talking about <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm actually I'm curious to see how this ends up because like I I've been an Apple other case user ever since they made the phones unholdable with the iPhone six forward and uh, and it's the iPhone, the the Apple other cases now the current ones and even even the, le- the old other bump ones back then uh, they've always been the best available that I that I've have been able to find. I've never found a third party leather case for for an iPhone that was as good as Apple's. And Apple's aren't even like amazing. They're just decent and and it seems like no one else is able to make better ones. <laughs> it, it seems like the best thing anybody has ever been able to say about other cases is they're cheaper. But I've rarely if ever found one that was like really nice. And Apple's cases I I have I've yet to find anything that is as nice as theirs. That being said, I decided uh, back, John, when you were tweeting a couple weeks ago, looking at cases and getting suggestions from people, one of them caught my eye. I thought it looked all right, and so I pre-ordered that one for the mini, which I don't, I haven't even been able to pre-order yet. But <laughs> I figured <laughs> I, I I plan to try the mini caseless, but I actually occasionally will probably want a case anyway. And that was before I knew Apple was going to make their own leather ones for it. So I decided to pre-order that one, and so we'll see. I'll be able to compare out because I'll probably also end up getting apples because apples are probably going to come in better colors. Um, the one I ordered only came like in black and brown, and so I couldn't get like a red one. So I'm gonna if apples comes in red, I'm gonna get apples, and then I'll have both, and I'll be able to compare. I'll let you know. But I, I honestly, I would be very surprised if any other cases are as nice as apples in in just how nice the leather feels, how good the buttons are how well and how closely it hugs the phone without being too bulky or too thick. Um, that's what I really want to see. And so many of them also are just incredibly tasteless with their logo placement. <laughs> and and the one I ordered uh, doesn't seem to have a logo visible on the back. And I'm, I'm very happy about that. So we'll see too. Like this, this one looks like the best third party one I have seen. But I also know this is the kind of thing you kind of just have to like put it on your phone and feel it to really know how good it is. So we'll see. You can bleep this out in the episode, Marco, but which one did you order? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> They're all yeah, the same. Yeah, I have, I have the same trepidations about it because I've, I've never bought a third-party leather case. And the problem with all these is like, you know the product photos can can be like far distant from the product you get. It's almost like like food photos on like menus of fast food places. Like, okay, right. So that's the picture. But then if I take the thing that I ordered and hold it up next to the picture, it's like, no, right? So I don't know how much to trust these pictures. I, you know, that's why I ordered multiple cases. Because I'm like, well, you know, I, these multiple cases still add up to less than Apple's one case. At least with Apple's <laughs> one expensive case, you're like, well, at least I know what I'm getting. Like, because I've got the leather cases before. I kind of know what I'm in for. And I'll just bite the bullet on the uh, on the cost. So, yeah, we will both report back. Real-time confirmation, it was the uh, case, that one. You got to bleep that out now. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I guess because I don't, I don't all, I, all I can say is that's the one that made me want to order it and try it. But we will see when it gets here. If I can, ever, I'm, I don't even know like how long it'll be before I have a phone. We're going to be able to start ordering the iPhone 12 Mini mm. this Friday morning. Oh but yeah, who knows? And the Max too. But who knows when I'll be able to actually get one to arrive here? That, that's a big question mark. You know, if if Apple is as supply constrained as they appear to be, um, and if the Mini has a whole ton of orders, as I think it probably will. Uh, this could be one of those things where, like, I get in there on minute two and it's backordered by six weeks. So we'll we'll figure it out. I got. I'll try to get one somehow. You know, if you would like to hear what Marco said, 
you can always go to atp.fm slash join and listen <laughs> to the bootleg where it will not be bleeped. Yes. Just saying. Just saying. Yep. The bell happens live, but the bleeps are put in in uh, editing. So the bootleg never has bleeps. Yep. There you go. All right. Uh, John, can you tell me about two-factor authentication and moving it between devices, please? Yeah, your, your cursor is blocking the letter of this person's name. Whose cursor is that? Oh, I guess that was mine. So who's Sorry. the blue ah, cursor? Isn't it weird that the Sorry. cursor like it was blocking the eye up? Anyway. They call it the eye beam. Michael Kozarski wrote in to tell us that uh, the Google Auth app uh, that I was complaining about uh, the other day about my phone setup changed its method of storing items. It used to do it in the keychain, uh, but now it doesn't anymore. But old keys that were created before the change are grandfathered in. So every time I upgrade to a new phone and some subset of my two-factor stuff is still in the Google Auth app, it's because they're the ones that were created before this app changed from storing things in the keychain to storing things just locally. So it's not a random set. It's the oldest ones. And that kind of makes sense now that I think about it. It just seemed random because they I changed the order around, right? So it wasn't actually the top whatever. It was just a subset of that. So anyway, um, yeah. And uh, on the two-factor stuff, uh, I got a lot of advice about what I can do to make my setup less painful. Aside from the dozens and dozens of people who had to tell me that I should use Authy or 1Password, which I predicted on the show, but it did not stop them. (laughs) I know you said on the show that you don't want to hear about 1Password, but have you considered 1Password? I've considered it. Um, (laughs) Welcome to 80% of all feedback ever. (laughs) Right. Uh, This this was by far the, the most popular suggestion and all these people are right, but also kind of not helpful. Everybody said, hey, if you print out the QR codes when you set up your stuff for the second time, and then, then when you get a new phone, you can just rescan all those same QR codes. True, but to implement that strategy to save myself trouble next time, I need a time machine because I didn't do that. <laughs> so, yes, you're right. I could have done that, and it would have been smart, but telling me now just makes me feel bad because... I know I'm in for the next time, which I'm resigned to. Like I said, like I've just I've decided by not using a cloud sync thing, I'm signing up to do this all over again. Maybe next time I will print out all the QR codes, but honestly, that makes that process even worse because now I have to like take little screenshots and do, do printouts and make sure I write down what thing that belongs to. And it's just, well, actually, I don't even do that because the QR codes usually embed that information. But anyway, uh, tune in two years from now when I set up a next phone to hear me complain about this again. Nice. Oh, goodness. Uh, Can you tell me about what's going on with Reminders and your Mac? Yeah, this is some good news for me. Uh, I'm told by a reliable source that Reminders will no longer wake my Mac up from sleep in uh, Mac OS. Hooray! Yep. I haven't experienced this for myself, but I am, again, told reliably that this was a bug that has been fixed. If you recall, my complaint was my computer would be dead asleep and then Reminders would pop up a notification and it would wake my Mac up at just so I could see the reminder on the screen, even when I wasn't in the room with it, so on and so forth. And I do not want my big, hot, noisy, expensive 2019 Mac Pro to wake up just because a reminder came up. And I also didn't want to disable notifications for reminders on my Mac because when I'm on my Mac, I do want reminders, notifications to pop up. I just don't want them to wake my Mac from sleep. And now, reportedly, they won't. Well, that's very exciting for you. I, I'm actually kind of excited that you can actually upgrade your os in a timely fashion or at all i mean can and will are two different things um you know let's let's take it easy here yeah fair enough considering all of our audio software won't work on big sur and day one probably anyway so yeah (laughs) 
Yeah, not that I'm grumbling about that at all. Anyway, moving on. Uh, can you tell me about what's going on with Amazon and the 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 name of their tube? Or I guess not the name of their tube, but their their hail name. Yeah, this feedback is from David Kenny, who tells us that he is one of those families that has a child whose name sounds a little bit like Siri, and in fact is Siri. So uh, we're talking about this with Alexa, where it's good that you can rename Alexa, Alexa's hail word to be like computer or Amazon, where I forget what the choices are. But you have some number of choices. We're saying, wouldn't it be great if uh, Apple's dingus had different names that you could call it too, just in case someone has a child named Siri. So David says, my niece's name is Shirsa. Uh, which is pronounced, which is spelled S A O I R S E, a name that you would never know the pronunciation of, except that it's also the name of a famous actress who's in a bunch of really good movies that you should definitely see. Um, I enjoy her work. Uh, Shirsa Ronan is her name. Anyway, um, she goes by Siri for short. Uh, and he says, Not infrequently in their house, my phone will give me confusing food recommendations when someone has yelled at my niece to come for dinner. <laughs> she says every, everyone who lives in that house has disabled hey dingus on all of their devices just to avoid this problem but if you enter this home beware because the name will be yelled into the air and your devices will activate so there you go apple please save david kenny's family uh fair enough uh can you tell me john about your favorite lens on your camera not my favorite lens, but I did yeah, yeah, beat yeah. Marco's percentage. We were, uh, you, you two were <laughs> discussing how often you use the telephoto uh, lens, the third lens on your uh, iPhones. Uh, and I thought I had used it a lot. And I did the little search in Apple Photos. This is on my iPhone XS. I use the 2X camera almost exactly 25% of the time, 25.01% of the time. That's way higher. So I was like 16 or something, right? Yep. I got to crop out that background. It's all about cropping out the background. <laughs> fair enough and can iphones do USB-C speeds or not what's the story there nope i screwed this one up i had mentioned in passing the other day when john was talking about how slow or was it john yeah one of you talking about how slow the uh, an itunes slash finder backup was of an ios device uh because you're using a USB-A to lightning cable and i said hey you should have used USB-C to lightning cable because those have usb3 transfer speeds and it turns out this was correct for like the two iPad Pros that actually had Lightning and uh, were iPad Pros, and but not even all of them. Like I think the the original nine point seven I think was two point still, but the twelve point nine was three and then the ten point five became was also USB three and then they went to USB C. <laughs> and apparently iPhones have never had the extra data pins required to actually give USB three speeds over the Lightning cable even with the USB-C cable. So turns out that was uh, not a thing. Whoopsies. All right, and then we enter the ancient follow-up section, but stuff that's been pushed down in the document for sometimes months. Uh, we are happy to report two months late that Apple has decided to extend Apple TV Plus free year trials through February of this upcoming year. Uh, ostensibly, this is because COVID delayed uh, shooting second seasons of, of some of the early shows uh, I think I'd heard rumblings probably on Upgrade uh, that uh, For All Mankind was close to done, I think. Uh, and and I think the morning show is starting up now, if I recall correctly. Uh, you should listen to Upgrade for that stuff. They cover it way better than we do. Uh, but anyways, they're going to extend the trial for those of us who bought phones or other devices uh, late last year through February 2021, which is great. Believe. Yep, I got the extension too. I was like, excited about that. I'm just saying for people, if you don't know this is happening, check in your devices. You might have a couple months free of Apple TV+. Plus. Yep. 
And also, I know this is very old uh, news. If you fly in the same circles as the three of us or pay attention to what our, uh, you know, we are saying and our friends are saying, but uh, Ted Lasso, get on that. It's what you need right now. Yep. It's happy, happy TV. It's good times. I don't care if you like sports or not, uh, which oof, I was listening to a certain top four episode early today because I'm a bit behind. And oh. <laughs> uh, But anyways, if you like sports <laughs> or not, um, please, please, uh, please give Ted Lasso a try. It's very good. Very wholesome. You skipped an item earlier. Did I? I'm sorry. Maybe I should number them. Oh, no, you're right. I did. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. It's not that it really matters, but it's cool. Uh, John, tell me about your too long Apple Maps directions, please. This is uh, many shows ago. As, as Casey said, this is an ancient fault. It's just bubbling up to the top now. But uh, I was using Apple Maps versus Google Maps, and I got frustrated because Apple Maps suddenly gave me a route that told me it would take an hour and 45 minutes when really it should be like 20 minutes, and I didn't understand it. I did it multiple times, and it kept giving it to me, and then Google gave me the correct time. Many listeners wrote in to say, I've had something similar happen, and what happened to me was that Apple Maps decided that I should have walking directions instead of driving directions, which would kind of explain the time difference, I suppose, although I'm kind of surprised that it thinks I could even walk it in an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> it's for the environment, John. Right. Yeah, at, the, at the time, I didn't check to see whether it was giving me walking direction, but that that is a plausible explanation to me. It doesn't make Ma- Apple Maps any better, considering Apple Maps should know that I drove there unless it thinks I can walk very fast. Uh, and it can probably even did the you park your car in this location thing, but then it gives me walking directions back. Come on, Apple. So we have this next piece of follow-up uh, from Zev Eisenberg, but to give you a hint as to how old it is, it was listed in our show notes as Zev Eisenboo because presumably this person had put in one of those god-awful Halloween uh, yeah, no, themed... I'm, I'm following the instructions, which is you must use the Halloween name if people use it on Twitter. It's to, to shame slash honor them. If you use the Halloween name on Twitter and you give us feedback, your Halloween name will be in the, in the show, Zev Eisenboo. Yep, so tell me what Zev Eisenboo had to, Zev Eisenboo had to say. That's fantastic. This is like, it's, like, it's like the same rule where like if somebody has a typo, you have to read it as it was typed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, this is about the Xcode zip files, XIP, not ZIP. We were talking about them and how they take a really long time to decompress. Actually, after that show, a bunch of people were like, oh, if you don't want to spend all that time, do it from the command line with this thing, and it won't take so long because then it won't have to do all like the signature verification crap. Um, the command line way is not worth describing because, yeah, it skips the si- signature verification, but then it does it when you launch the app anyway. You cannot avoid the signature verification. It's going to happen. <laughs> you can split up into two pieces. One, decompress. Two, verify when you launch or do them both at once. And that's what Zev was writing to say. He was saying that uh, the zip file is Apple proprietary signed compressed file. Uh, not sure if it's the same compression scheme as zip, but once it's unzipped, the app is also unquarantined, so you don't have to then have Gatekeeper look at it. So the quarantine attribute... It's also removed. You know when you like download something from the internet and the first time you launch it, it's like, oh, you this file was downloaded from the internet. Are you sure you want to launch it? Un- uncompressing a zip file by double-clicking it in the finder does the compression and the signature verification. And once it does all of that, it also removes the quarantine attribute, so it's good to launch after that. And you can't avoid, as far as I know, either one of those steps unless you disable Gatekeeper. You can just choose whether you want them to all happen at once or split them up into two pieces. And then, John, I presume, would love to tell me about the Xbox Elite 2 controller. Speaking of Cotton Bureau, isn't that what Cotton Bureau sent you for their ad spot a while back? Yep, this was part of their uh, sponsorship they gave us with uh, Xbox uh, Elite 2 controller to try out, and I reviewed it in a ad read slash product review in the tradition of our toaster stuff a while back. Uh, and I noted that uh, some of my friends who had Xbox Elite controllers of various vintages had complained about reliability 
issues, which is kind of depressing when you buy like a, you know, I forget it was $180 controller or something, very expensive controller. You wouldn't expect that one to have reliability concerns. And I was speculating that maybe it's because it was such low volume that it doesn't get the same testing. Anyway, Microsoft has apparently addressed this and they've it's amazing they use like the same language. Here's here's the quote from their document. We've received claims that a small percentage of our customers, it's always a small percentage, a small mm-hmm. percentage of our customers are experiencing mechanical issues. I mean, what percentage does it have to be for, for small not to apply? Like, is 80% a sign? I don't know what the reliability are, but apparently this is legally approved uh, message for every reliability problem, including Apple's AirPod Pros, which also <laughs> have a repair extension program now, in case you weren't aware. Uh, yeah, Small percentage of Apple's AirPod Pros. Yeah, oh, God. I, that, did I tell you that that actually happened to me? No. And it happened, I literally, so this is, this is the thing. We, ha- we never actually talked about it on the show. Um, but there has been a widespread problem for AirPod Pros. I think you mean a small percentage, Marco. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. where it's it seems like they, they develop like a rattle or like a like a static noise that often is correlated to motion uh, or noise cancellation. It basically it, it kind of sounds like something has come unglued inside and it rattles around, um, especially during bass frequencies or during movement. We've heard from so many people who have AirPod Pros who have not only gotten them replaced for this. But I've gotten multiple replacements <laughs> because this seems to just kill them after some amount of time or some amount of usage. And it's funny. It's just like the butterfly keyboard responses. Like you, you get a replacement AirPod Pro, but it seems like the replacements end up getting the same problem. Uh, they so, so what you're saying is, is this just actually came out that they just um, launched a service program where they say that a small percentage... <laughs> Well, of course it is. <laughs> a small percentage of AirPod Pros uh, have, have a potential issue uh, and if they're manufactured before October of 2020. And so there's a service program that if you're having this issue with one or both of your AirPod Pros, you can get them replaced for up to two years after purchase, which is nice because we're about to reach the one-year anniversary of their launch if we haven't already. Uh, and so they're, the first ones are, are going to be falling out of warranty soon otherwise. Uh, but it's good that they're basically giving a two-year extended warranty on anything on any of them purchased uh, up through uh, through or until October of, of 2020 which was uh, last week <laughs> so, yeah, so it, makes, it makes it sound like they figured out the problem though because they're cutting it off as saying but okay from this point on we figured it out and if, if you got one that was manufactured before this point you get a, a two-year warranty but after this point you don't get a two-year warranty because presumably we figured out the problem and now we're gluing that thing in better whatever the heck the problem was so unlike the butterfly keyboard I have some confidence that they've actually figured this problem out. I hope so, but you know, but they also said the same thing about the butterfly keyboard. Like, how many times did they quote improve that thing for for service or reliability issues? And and I think only the very last generation one has seemingly not had massive major scale problems. And and this is one of those things where like, I, like I'm pretty sure like when when Apple says a small percentage, like <laughs> this. Most of the time, when Apple says something, you can usually believe it. Like, you, you, there might be some lawyering in some of the wording or some tricks with, like, you know, making things sound better than they are. But for the most part, you can usually believe it. When they say a small percentage of their hardware of a certain type has a flaw, that is usually BS. And I don't know if they intend it. Maybe they're like, well, you know, we only hear about this bunch percent through the service channel or anything. But, like usually that means all of them have this flaw and you know maybe just maybe most people don't hit it but like there is some kind of flaw that causes this and they just have this flaw with the way they made them you got to invoke uh merlin's credo that uh if you don't use a product it usually works pretty well 
Um, so like to, to give an example, my wife has AirPod Pros and I asked as soon as this repair program, I'm like, have you had this problem? Like, cause what I wanted to say is like, you should really, really use your AirPod Pros more so that you can induce this problem so that we can get a free replacement within the two years. Because if you really lightly use them and the problem appears in year three, because you barely use them, that's not great. Right. So just use them now. You know? So if you like Apple may be hearing from, a, you know, Apple says it as if a small percentage have the problem, but Apple hears about a small percentage. And again, what is small is small 1%, 5%, 10%, 20%, whatever. Um, but how many people have AirPod Pros and just don't use them that much? And so that this, that this problem never occurs because maybe it only occurs after the first, you know, X hundred hours of use or something like that. Or maybe it only occurs if you have the gooby ear wax instead of the dry ear wax. That's the thing. Look up. <laughs> wow. Um, Anyway, who knows? Uh, this uh, this is a quite a sidetrack on my Xbox Elite Two story, which is <laughs> oh, hey, goodness. guess what? The uh, if you have a, an Elite Series Two, your warranty has been extended. Uh, it's been extended from the terrible default warranty on this product ninety days. Come on, Microsoft! <laughs> is that even a hundred and eighty dollar controller has a ninety day warranty? Come on. Anyway, it's been extended to one year, so that's not great, but it's better than nothing. So. If you have an Xbox uh, Elite Series 2 controller, use it a lot in the first year. So if it's going to break, you will break it, and then you'll get a fresh one. Oh, my. Oh, and one more thing on the AirPod Pro thing. So I actually, I had to send mine in. Coincidentally, I didn't know there was a service program coming. I literally sent my first one in for repair uh, like two days before they announced the service program. (laughs) Nice. It is a really kind of like overwrought and adorable way to when you when you have to send in or exchange or get get a replacement airpod that it comes in a it comes in the same size box as like or like a replacement iphone would you you open it up and then there's a little inner box and inside the inner box is a little tiny cardboard flap that holds the single airpod like in this nice little presentation thing and there's a little card that comes with it that tell you you unfold the card and it depicts for you how you're supposed to take out this airpod from its package and put your old airpod back into it and retape it and send it back it's like the most like cool apple thing like <laughs> it's just one of those things that, like you don't usually see unless you've done done it yourself you don't usually see like apple's service side of things and it's 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 pretty fun, like because it, it is as Apple as you could possibly imagine, like super over designed, amazing packaging. <laughs> so it, it's a pretty fun thing to see, and, and the AirPod one is is truly something. That's not at all surprising. I had to go look through, uh, find a link for this earwax thing, and I found what I thought was a reasonable page. But then I was like, oh no, I've given bad information because the top of the page is earwax type colon the myth. And then it describes what I just said about the the sticky versus dry ear wax. I'm like, is it a myth? Is this like a Snopes thing where it's like, here's the myth and then here's the reality? And so I scroll down quickly to the conclusion. And the conclusion is, unlike most of the human characters that are used to demonstrate simple genetics principles, wet versus dry ear wax really is controlled by one gene with two alleles. Well, then why did you say it was a myth at the top of the document? <laughs> anyway, we'll put the link in the show notes if you want to learn about earwax. <laughs> this is the only tech podcast that will give you earwax links. Just let it be known. I'm so so excited. Did you guys get caught up? I'm going to regret this, but here we go. Did you get caught up in the uh, in the ear candling thing that went around in like the early to mid uh, aughts? What, what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm guessing. I'll, I'll give you but, one guess. <laughs> um, Did you? <laughs> oh yes. Uh, so if you weren't around in the early to mid aughts, uh, there was, I, I presume this was in the like, uh, granola, like natural remedy world. I, my first job 
when I was 15 years old was working in a little natural food store co-op thing. And we sold those. And this was like 1997. And they like we sold them in the store. And they would just look like these giant cones. And I, I it took me a while of working there to even know what they were. Uh, but eventually, like I had, to, I had to you know restock the shelf at some point, and I had to put some up there. I'm like, oh my god, like that's what this is. This, it's it's a weird thing. But anyway, yeah, it's it's older than you think, and you are correct that it does come from the like you know hippie uh, region of things. But sorry, continue. Yeah, so uh, I don't. I, I, this was brought to me by my then girlfriend, and I, she wasn't particularly granola. So I don't know where she got this, although the area in which she grew up was super granola from what I gather. But anyway, this was a uh, super, super hippie area of very rural Southwest Virginia, uh, which seems like they would not meld, but sure enough. Anyways, the idea is you take this, this, I don't know, like six or eight inch thing that's like, it seems like it's almost like rolled up and dried up gauze from my recollection. Now, I'm trying to remember something that happened 15 years ago. So, you know, my facts may be wrong here, but suffice to say, you stick this thing in your ear and light it like a candle. <laughs> so you've got one end inside your ear and the other end is literally on fire. And then if you're smart, you'll like put, you'll like stick the, this quote unquote candle again, not like wax. It's like more like paper, if you will. Um, but anyways, you will stick this, this candle through like a plastic or a, I'm sorry, like a paper plastic, um, like plate or something to catch any of the flaming drippings, if you will, that are, that are coming off of this candle as it's burning down. And, and the theory is you burn it down, you know, as close as you can get to your ear before it starts to burn you. And then if you unroll what's left, you can look inside and see the little bits of earwax that have been sucked out by the candle burning. Ugh. And I tried this at the time because I was, well, really dumb. Now I'm just only, now I'm only li- a little dumb. Then I was really dumb. Anyways, I tried it and I was like, holy crap, look at all the earwax that came out of here. Uh, but as it turns out, when I thought about this many years later and did like two <laughs> seconds of research on it, it turns out that, yeah, all that earwax is just the candle itself crumbling and and so, oh, <laughs> I, I can't believe Marco just figuring this out. It's like every kid magic trick, but like, All right, that came from your body, dude. Yep, yep, yep. So, anyway, so we'll put a link in the show notes that shows uh, this is on Wikipedia. You can see not only the remnants, which is their first image, and then you can also see somebody doing the candling if you scroll a little more. Um, I, I, my re- recollection, having not read this Wikipedia page in you know 15 years, is that it's complete and utter. BS. And yeah, do so, not yeah. stick things into your orifices and set them on fire. This includes cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. And also, medical note here, uh, it's not actually, you're not supposed to actually remove all your earwax. There's, I don't know the details, but yeah, do some research if you care. But yeah, that's a thing. God, we're going nowhere good. Yeah. <laughs> I know what's next in the show notes. Can we, I, I would like to pitch a quick rearrangement, which I know is going to drive John nuts. Can we just get the YouTube DL thing out of the way real quick? Because I don't think it's going to take very long. You're so, you're so angry about your toy. I am. So you should be. Hey, can you actually make it quick? I think I can, because I actually don't have that much to say about okay, it. Okay, let's see. All right. So a week or two ago, I forget exactly when, um, YouTube DL was punted off of GitHub because of a DMCA request by the RIAA. So that was a whole bunch of stuff that may or may not have made sense to you. So let me back up a smidge. YouTube DL is a thing I've been espousing for years, and it's a command line tool that you can use to download videos off of YouTube. But it also does way more than that. Way, way, way more. And you can you can point YouTube DL at almost any URL, and you can get it to download whatever video is being played at that URL. 
And this can be used for nefarious purposes. Like, you know, you could, I don't know, download a TV show or something like that if it's if it's presented in such a way that YouTube DL can download it. But you can also use it for a ton of legitimate uses. And as an example, one of the things I'd heard, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I'd read that a lot of news organizations will use it to capture footage to then rebroadcast later, which presumably they get they get the rights for and so on and so forth. But it's mm. easiest for them. No, maybe <laughs> they it's don't usually. For them. <laughs> Fair. It's easiest for them to just say, "Hey, we're going to download this ourselves," and that'll give you, you know, basically the source video. It's not like it's taking a screen capture or anything like that. It's actually going and getting the source, you know, MP4 or what have you, and. It was punted from GitHub because of a DMCA. What is that? D- Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So that was an act that basically said that if you are a, 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 please correct me, gentlemen, but if you're a copyright holder and you see your copyrighted material somewhere, you can tell the people hosting it to pull that off their servers. Yeah. Is that a, Among other things. I mean, I think what you've given is like a functional definition, but my recollection of the actual law is that basically it's illegal to try to circumvent uh, copy protection. Yeah. The, okay. the, short, the thing you need to know is that it, that it, it created a mechanism and a justification by which uh, copyright holders could file claims against websites or web hosts or anybody involved in the web hosting chain uh, called DMCA takedown notices that basically say, like, I assert that I'm the holder of these copyrights and this person at at this uh, you know URL is infringing upon my copyrights and therefore you, the host are required to take that down, or I can sue you. This takedown procedure is very problematic and very vulnerable to issues. Uh, and it, the, that's a story for maybe another day, but it's, it's, a, it's a horrible system, but we haven't come up with anything better yet. But it's horrible. So, uh, you know, GitHub decides to punt YouTube DL, and I didn't really dig that much into the why, but I think what had happened, and it really doesn't matter, but I think what had happened is somewhere in like a unit test or something like that, they had a link to a YouTube video that was like a music video or something like that. So the RIAA, which is the Recording Artist, Recording Industry Artists of America? Association like of that. America. The same people who sued for Napster and all the other things back in the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the RIAA said, whoa, 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 whoa. We see this URL to something that one of our member companies has rights to. So this is BS. Take it down, man. And GitHub, because as much as I do love GitHub, it has a host of problems. And this is not even the biggest. GitHub, of course, doesn't really have a whole lot of choice. I don't think in this matter, but immediately just They said, don't. They have literally no choice. They have to take it down or they will get sued. Like, that's it. That's, this is one of the things, like, one of the reasons why the DMCA is is so problematic for anybody who hosts content there's basically nothing they can do about it so you you can do something like you can, you can file a counterclaim uh to say like no i i believe this this should be here but the way mechanically this usually works in practice for lots of various like pragmatic and legal and, and protection reasons is if you have any kind of copyright dispute with something online you can you if you get a if you get a claim and you don't think that claim is valid you generally still have to take the thing down while you argue it out if you are going to argue it out you have to take it down in the meantime and and if you don't then they will go up the chain and they will go to your host or they will go to your domain registrar or like they'll just they'll keep going up the chain until someone takes it down and for enforce you because like the thing is like you know imagine and obviously things are a little bit different for github which is owned by microsoft this this is the big company here um but you know, like like if I get a claim, if, if something is on, you know, overcast.fm slash something and somebody has a problem with it, 
if I'm lucky, they'll first send the claim to me. And I'll be able to either, you know, comply and take it down or I'll, I'll, I might argue with them, hey, no, this, this is, you know, this is legit. But then if they don't get the answer they want, they'll go to Linode, my host. And if they don't get the answer they want from, and, and Linode will come to me and, and basically be like, look, we don't want to deal with this. You deal with this and let us know when it's dealt with. <laughs> Everyone up the chain will do that same thing. They'll go to the domain registrar. They'll go to ISPs. They'll, like, they'll go to anybody who's involved in the transmission of that content to the world until it's taken down, basically. At no point do you have an opportunity to say, like, in any way that really matters, uh, this is fair use, or uh, this, is, this is not actually a valid claim, or I don't even know if you have the right to make this claim. Like, <laughs> at no point do, does any argument have any room to be heard or any time to be considered. There is no arbiter of any of this. It is just like, you file a DMCA claim against a thing, and it will be gone from the internet within days. The worst that can happen is if you are filing that fraudulently, and if you put in your actual content information, somebody could theoretically sue you by making a, for making a false claim. But in practice, like so, like so much about copyright disputes on the internet, if any claim is made, it's going to be taken down. It's gone. It's not going to go to a court. It's not going to go to a judge while it gets hashed out. It's going to hit somebody, either an ISP or a host or something, who is like, I don't want the liability of dealing with this if you're wrong, so just take it down. And, that, and like, so it's forced to be taken down. So anyway, things do work differently when you're somebody the size of GitHub uh, slash Microsoft. Like, obviously, you know, th- things are a little bit more complicated. But if somebody as big as the RAA sends in a, a DMCA claim, which is implicitly a legal threat, and, and the, RA, the RAA is pretty litigious, that's basically its entire role in the world. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like, when you get that letter, no one's going to argue. There, no one's going to give anyone a time to be like, "Hey, do you think this is fair use? Explain to us why, and we'll consider your claim." Nope, it's gone. No matter what it is, it's gone. Yep. So GitHub takes down not only the official YouTube DL repository, meaning you know it takes down all the source code for YouTube DL, but apparently the RIAA just conveniently decided to look at a whole bunch of forks. Uh, a fork in this context, if you're not familiar, means basically a copy of the source code. And so YouTube took down a whole bunch of forks. Uh, Floaty Potatoes in the chat, which is a great uh, username, by the way, uh, pointed out, we'll put it in the show notes, that apparently GitHub is threatening to ban uh, anyone who rehosts the source for YouTube DL on GitHub, which I had not seen until it was mentioned in the chat room. Uh, so basically, the the source disappeared from GitHub. Now, the good news is is that source still exists on thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of computers all over you know the internet and all over the world. Uh, as last I'd looked about a week ago, the website was back up, although it was at a different URL. Downloads are still up, um, but the source I'd I'd heard something about it having been moved to like Bitbucket or some other you know GitHub equivalent I forget exactly where it was uh, but one way or another it is still apparently a thing there was a release just a couple days ago but it just really bums me out that this this tool which certainly can be used for nefarious purposes I'm not arguing that it can be used for nefarious purposes but it also can very well be used for honest and good purposes. And I use this thing constantly, and it's it's just really sad to me that it's been taken down by a, bun- a bunch of people who seem to be acting like jerks. And it's funny because just today I was listening to the, um, I think it's today's episode of 99PI 
about GeoCities. And one of the things that they talked about briefly was archiving all of GeoCities prior to it being shut down by Yahoo. And YouTube DL is like a great tool for doing exactly that. You know, I've talked, I don't know if I've talked about that in this show, but I think I've talked on Analog about how um, when the god-awful things happened in Charlottesville um, shortly after Trump got elected, arguably because of Trump, uh, a few, like a few weeks later, uh, Dave Matthews had organized this like six or seven hour, like free concert as a way to like raise money and, and just do a nice thing for Charlottesville. Cause Dave Matthews was originally from there and it was broadcast live and I recorded it using YouTube DL. It was you know, I didn't have to pay to get access to it, but I recorded it and that six and a half hours, whatever it is. A, to the best of my knowledge, exists on no other computer on the internet. Now, that may not be true, but to the best of my knowledge, it doesn't exist anywhere else. And B, it's a phenomenal freaking concert. And it's <laughs> like, it's, it's a, it would be a real shame if a tool like YouTube DL didn't exist anymore because it would, it would make it either impossible or intolerably inconvenient for me to be able to do that sort of thing. And this isn't just about me. It's about thousands and hundreds of thousands, maybe, of people who use this tool for doing legitimately useful and good things. And so... I don't really have that much to say about it other than that I'm super bummed that it got taken down off GitHub, and I hope that this doesn't last forever. I hope that they find a new home for it or re resolve whatever the issue is with, our, with the RAAA so it can be put back on GitHub. Um, because it's just, uh, it, just because a tool can be used for bad doesn't necessarily mean that the tool itself is bad. No, just don't ask me about guns. Anyway, that's, that's my thoughts about that. <laughs> no, I mean, and that's that. that oh God, I have so much I could say about this. I love that you told John that we'd have we'd be doing this quickly because that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> there's so many angles that we could take with this. I'm not surprised this happened, and I don't think it was like uh, an an unjust thing. Like uh, I use YouTube DL all the time for many of the reasons you just said. Uh, it, it's it's totally a incredibly useful tool like it's it's great it's one of those tools that like almost every nerd should have and know about and and the, you know they aren't the only ones who who provide this kind of thing like if you it turns out wanting to download videos off of youtube is a very common request <laughs> and so there's all sorts of like websites and tools and and apps and stuff that will like generate a download url for you or will download the file for you if you like paste in a youtube url or browser extensions that'll do it like because ultimately you know your browser has to download the video to play it so it's it's not that hard to make apps or or things to extract these video files for like standalone downloads um, and all youtube dl is is an engine with all these you know as, as casey mentioned it's an engine with like rules that will be able to extract videos out of web pages and, and download them in various formats and then merge them into different ways and you know to be able to like you know combine the the best audio codec with the best video codec or things like that um it is a tool that has lots of legitimate uses it is also a tool that is primarily used i think for personal fair use uses yeah well put copyright law is pretty poorly understood by most people <laughs> who comment on the internet um but generally speaking and fair use is is not well codified uh it's it's more of a a set of precedents and kind of vague guidelines uh that are open to lots of interpretation but generally it is considered fair use to make a copy of something that is copyrighted by somebody else for yourself like if it was if you had it in some way 
and you are like saving it for yourself, generally that is considered fair use. There's lots of exceptions to this, but that's kind of that's been like a, a reasonably established principle. Things like um, like taping a video off of TV. Uh, ah, this is where I come in with my old man story. Yeah, because there, oh, this was, hey, there was a court case. Like this, it was a big deal. Yeah. So, so this is this is from from my childhood. Something I remember about it's this exact situation. This is YouTube DL for the old, right? And <laughs> it's a combination of, of what you both just said, Casey. It was a live concert that you wanted to take in what we call in the old days time shift, which is mm-hmm. you wanted to save that thing for later. Marco, saying fair use, having a personal copy for yourself. Here is Jack Valenti talking to the House of Representatives in 1982. And I quote, I say to you that the VCRs to the American film producer in the American public as the Boston Strangler is to the woman at home, he says in typical 80s '80s sexist analogy ways, that the VCR was like the Boston Strangler. But Jack Valenti was uh, representing the MPAA, which is the movie version of the RAA, right? (laughs) We can't let people at home have a device that allows them to make a local copy of things that are broadcast on television. It will destroy the movie industry. People being able to rent movies and watch them in their house. Movies will be dead. And as we know, after the 1980s, we never had movies again. And the movie industry never (laughs) made any more money. Yep, that's right. YouTube DL is 100% a VCR for the internet. And it's so dumb that we have to fight these same things over again just because computers are involved now. Yeah. Well, and, and the DMCA makes this more complicated um, because the DMCA made it illegal to circumvent uh, encryption schemes or copyright, copyright protection schemes. Or, and, or anything that stops you from getting it, which, as Marco pointed out, you have to have the video already. Like, this is the whole uh, the thing I talked about on the show ages ago, where I forget it, maybe it was Lessig or whatever. I was talking about a, a DRM in general is like, going through the whole public key encryption thing with Alice and Bob, you know, and and there's someone in the middle trying to eavesdrop and how they use encryption to stop that from happening. And you go through the whole big thing so people understand what public key encryption is at a basic level. And then you say, the problem is, what we're actually trying to do is stop Bob from getting it. And you're like, but wait, I'm giving it to Bob. Like, the whole point is Bob has to get it. Alice and Bob are using encryption to exchange information. The video is coming to me so I can see it with my eyeballs and hear it with my ears. But you want to stop me from having the video? You just sent me the video. You can't stop me from having the video (laughs) if you just sent me the video. Because if you stop me from having the video, I could never see it. It's like, well, we want you to see it, but you can't actually have it. Like, don't take it after we give it to you. That's what YouTube DL is doing. Okay. Because YouTube DL cannot give you video, as far as I know. I don't know if there's any nefarious things. But I'm pretty sure YouTube DL cannot give you video that you can't already see. Right. So like if it was a, if there was some password protected site that you can't get into, no. you can't point YouTube DL at it and it will crack the password for you and get the video. It only records, again, as far as I know, video that you can already see. It's just time shifting. It's just the VCR. Literally all it is doing is it ha- it's an engine that has a, a bunch of like built in heuristics and rules. They're like, all right, well, if you're looking at a page on this domain name, extract this element, follow this script and take this URL that's in this element. Like it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so yeah, obviously 1982, the DMCA didn't exist. Once computers came, our lawmakers had even less of a grasp on them, and the lobbying groups were even more powerful, and they managed to get this terrible law passed because otherwise computers would be the Boston Strangler for insert whatever industry, you know, like it was this exact same argument. Like, you can't let people be copying stuff willy-nilly. Napster will destroy the music industry, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, so now we have things like streaming, which definitely didn't destroy the music industry and are totally illegal. Anyway, uh, this law is dumb, and this YouTube DL takedown is dumb, and YouTube DL is uh, the VCR for the computer age, uh, and a VCR should not be illegal, and neither should YouTube DL. Right. And that being said, it would be better for them 
if they renamed their project (laughs) and and made it like although it is kind of funny like youtube wasn't the one filing this the filing this claim (laughs) like they'll just call it youtube vcr it'll be fine right like if anything you know they have a uh you know a trademark claim (laughs) but anyway uh you know youtube doesn't seem to have much of a problem with this I, i think because they probably know like it's, it would be a, a losing battle to try to fight these tools. And YouTube has a local download option on iOS. Yes, but it's it's only only premium accounts and it's protected. Anyway, it's a whole thing. But um, there are lots of tools that are used mostly for piracy that have legitimate uses. And if you want them to survive out there in the world, you have to not play up the piracy angle too much in your names or your marketing material. You know, people will figure it out. Like everyone's going to know, like if they rename it to some generic name, media DL, who knows, who cares? Rename it to something that isn't YouTube DL <laughs> and remove any really incriminating comments or test cases from the source code. And you could put it back up somewhere and it would be okay, I think. I was surprised to learn that the, the complaint was that it had a link to a video because I just assumed that what had happened was it was like, uh, I don't know, there's lots of examples of this, but like, uh, so the DMCA is written so broadly that if you do literally anything to discourage people from like getting your content after you gave it to them, essentially, like if you if you put like a piece of string on the door and tie a little knot in it, said, now if you cut that string with a scissor, DMCA takedown because that was there to prevent you from going through the door that you just went through, uh, but you cut it with scissors, so you can't do that, right? So uh, DVD encryption, the the CSS encryption on DVDs, right? Yeah, DCSS. Oh. Right, DCSS. Uh, cracking that would fit in a, a, a couple lines of Perl code that would fit on a T-shirt, making that T-shirt essentially illegal because it's now allowing people to circumvent. Well, I don't know if the T-shirt was legal, but that was the joke. Anyway, the whole point is, but it's so easy to break. Like, it's, it's so, you know, your encryption is so bad. And me cracking it is just so I can make my own fair use personal backup copy of this DVD that I bought, yada, yada, yada. It's like, I don't care. The law says if you do anything to circumvent something that's stopping you from getting the thing that we gave you already, DMCA. Doesn't say, you know, I think there is an exception there for like, well, I think there there is some exception for, you know, I don't know if it's personal use or fair use or whatever, but it's it's always been interpreted so broadly and no one can afford to fight with these legal battles anyway that, as Marco was saying, it's like, well, even if you're right, do you really want to spend time fighting this giant corporation going through the courts and all this other crap? And most people in the end don't. A couple of people tried in the beginning and it was, you know, anyway. Um, I thought the YouTube DL must have had somewhere in it one of its sources, the equivalent of DCSS, which is like some trivial code to break something that's been broken for years and years that everybody knows is not really stopping anybody. It's like that piece of string on the door that's like, well, you just get a scissor and you cut it and then you can get the thing. But if there really is no code like that anywhere in YouTube DL, that makes it even worse. Because I think things that like let you decrypt DVDs, ooh, are, you know, should be legal, even though the DMCA says that they're not. But if this thing was doesn't have any of that, and it's just simply, hey, don't figure out which element of the of an HTML page to extract the URL from, or don't watch network traffic to figure out what URL to that's that's even worse. And I think the the interpretation would be like, well, you know all those like redirects and the web page and all that? Those mechanisms are there to stop you from downloading it. It's like, well, are they really? Or is that just the way a web app works? It's like, well, don't, it's it's to stop you from having it after we gave it to you. Just, we say it is, so you can't have it. DMCA takedown. Super dumb. The smart way to do this kind of thing is to have tools that are more discreetly named 
to to not put anything too incriminating in your source code about you know specific <laughs> cases like oh this is made to rip off this one this one you know version of this YouTube video that has a password on it or you know maybe maybe not accommodating those cases and to accept the fact that like when you're in the piracy tool business and again i know i i've said already there's lots of legitimate use cases for most of these tools including youtube dia and i use it all the time uh but when you're in that business you have to be pretty careful it's a lot like if you were doing if you were in some kind of like illicit business in real life if you're like you know selling drugs i would imagine or you know god knows you know selling bootleg vhs tapes on the corner (laughs) who knows uh but like if you're doing something that's like in a gray area of the law you kind of have to be on the run all the time. It, it kind of surprises me how long YouTube DL was able to get away with what it does right there in public on a large, big company-owned site. You have to either be really careful to always appear 100% legitimate if you're going to do this kind of thing, or you have to be prepared to be on the move and, and just be prepared for a game of whack-a-mole with whoever you're, you're you know, your stuff is dealing from i should just look this up but isn't there like a security researcher exception to dmca as well some crap like that it's such a sloppy law like it's very it's weirdly broad and they just claim to be security researchers here's a tool for security researchers right like, like every definition in the dmca is, is extremely vague <laughs> so it's very hard to like yeah, but, like yeah. I said, the practical definition is even if you are 100 percent right if you have to prove that in a court of law it takes a lot of money and time the most people don't have or want to deal with especially when the on the other side is uh, you know industry group or whatever with essentially in, comparatively infinite money and time uh the, the everything's stacked against you yeah yeah so looking at the wikipedia page for youtube dl uh, the RIAA requests argue that YouTube DL violates whatever section, uh, the anti-circumvention provisions of the DMCA, and also some German copyright, copyright law, since it circumvents a rolling cipher used by YouTube to generate the URL for the video file itself, with the R- which the RIAA, of course, considered to be an effective technical protection measure, mm-hmm. since it is, quote, intended to inhibit direct access to the underlying YouTube video files, thereby preventing... That's a piece of string on the door. Yep, thereby preventing or inhabiting, inhibiting, excuse me, the down loading, copying, or distribution of the video files. Now, that's funny because I, I don't know how YouTube DL works and we looked into it, but my very limited understanding was the way it works is it basically, as you guys described, downloads, you know, whatever web page. And oftentimes when it comes to YouTube, you'll see it say like it's grabbing the JavaScript from YouTube to presumably execute to do whatever it needs to do to get the actual video file URL. So I, I think you're right, John, it is the string on the door thing, but I don't know, man. It just seems it seems really, really thin to me, which, of course, doesn't matter because of all the reasons Marco described, but it just seems like a really thin claim to me. I mean, that's how the web works. They send you the code and then your browser runs it. So if right. it's done, <laughs> it, it, like they send you the JavaScript, it comes to your browser, it is received by your computer, your computer executes it, and then, you know, it's, again, they can't, how can they stop you from having the video they're giving you? They're giving, they have to give you the video, you can't see it and hear it. So it's like, but but that's it. You can just see it in here in the context that we let you never know, and which was exactly the same way with broadcast television until the advent of the VCR, which, as we know, ended television. Well, that took longer than I expected. I'm sorry, but um, but no, it's it, like it bums me out that this happened. But I'm not too worried about it in the grand scheme of things because this code is everywhere, and I'm sure like it may not be as easy for me to find a either the code or an executable, but I'm pretty confident that I will still 
probably forevermore, be able to find this code and or executable because there's so many people that use it for so many varying and different reasons. And so it, it's a bummer, but I, I don't view this as the end of YouTube DL. And honestly, at least for now, until YouTube, you know, changes the way their site works or whatever the case may be, uh, it, it still works. You know, even the one, one or two month old version still works for almost everything. So I'm not too worried about it right now. Um, but it, nevertheless, it does bum me out that this is a thing. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, it, it even it even still works to the point where, like, the other day, like, it, it has a little way to update its definitions. You know, you know, YouTube DL dash capital U as the command line argument, um, and you occasionally have to do that if, like, if you haven't updated it in a while and you go to download something and it's like, oh, sorry, we can't parse this page. Try running this update thing. That still works. Like, <laughs> it's wherever it's pointing to in the in the version of the binary I have that server is still up. <laughs> and so I was able to even update the definitions. The, like, I think it was yesterday or the day before. It was, very, it was sometime in the last few days, very recent, when I did this and it worked just fine. So, uh, you know, I, I think it'll be fine. It just probably won't be on, on GitHub or any, you know, major big name, you know, source repository site. But the good thing is that GitHub is not the world. Like, this is yet, this is yet another benefit this is one of the things i was thinking of earlier when i said we could take this in a lot of different directions this sorry john this is this is one of the things where the more diversity we have in the infrastructure of the web and the companies that you can use in certain ways how many companies are there to upload type of content x y or z the more diversity we have the better what if the prohibited content in question was say a video and youtube prohibited you from uploading that video to youtube that's a pretty big hit if you need that video to be seen by a lot of people like if you need if you need a a popular video to be seen that can't be on youtube unless it has naked people in it it's not going to get a lot of views (laughs) we're lucky that like source code is pretty easy to host git itself can be hosted anywhere you want it's you know it takes some work to set up um and you know github offers niceties like the um pull request system that you know you kind of that are prohibitive probably to set up on your own but like source code existed before github collaborative editing of source repositories and and change you know uh, change requests and and you know branch editing it's like this all existed before github even today there are other places that you can do it granted not a lot of them but there are other places you could do it and you can still set up your own server to do it and that and like that is possible only because the world of hosting code somewhere for collaboration is not super locked down. GitHub is big, and for for the social aspect of the collaboration and you know stuff like the pull request um, system, it it does it is a pretty big hit to lose GitHub for that. But we are lucky that in this instance, it, you know the open web is still able to host this stuff and is still able to serve this role for this so that there is no one place you can go to block something from existing on the open web. Uh, And so, you know, good for diversity here. And this is yet another reason why we should defend this kind of diversity whenever it is threatened. Uh, I think that's basically all we have to talk about today, right? So uh, ask ATP. None of you are going to jump on me about this. Not a one. Oh, are we supposed to talk about the Apple event coming up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh. Mm. Uh, there's going to be Macs, and they'll be fast. I mean, 
I, I'm supposing that that's basically the story. I, I, I don't mean to sound like negative or anything. It's just, I, I don't know. I just, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I'm sure there's going to be some new Macs. I bet they're going to look pretty similar to the Macs we got today, and I bet they're going to be really fast. So, John, I presume you, as the resident old man of the three of us, have plenty of thoughts and opinions, so please take it away. Why aren't you excited about this, Casey? I'm excited. Is, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm excited. It's not but... about Mac Pros. This is, this, is the, this is the event. I mean, Apple's been having an event a month for the past couple months, right? I can't wait to see what the December event is going to be. Ha ha. Um, no, uh, our Macs. Uh, we've been talking about them for a long time. It's, the, it's my most anticipated Apple hardware product of the year. It's coming last. Uh, and I'm super excited. Yeah, you're right. They're probably going to just be, you know, laptops. Like, so the rumor is it's going to be a 13 inch. Well, th- this is from Bloomberg. They say, they say a 13 inch and 16 inch MacBook Pro and a 13 inch MacBook Air. That seems like a lot, but sure. Why not? Um, though all those machines are plausible machines. They're all going to go arm eventually. Uh, obviously I want an arm laptop so I can buy one and, uh, stop being nagged by my family about getting an extra computer. <laughs> well, at this point, my daughter's really gotten addicted to the 5K iMac, so I'm not sure I'll be able to kick it, kick her out of this room, but I think it will. But anyway, I'm excited about our Macs. I'm excited about these Macs. I'm much more excited about these than I was for the phone, certainly than for the, the HomePod Mini or anything like that. Um, so yeah, this is this is what I've been looking forward to. This is going to be my reward slash dessert after the uh, stress bath that this week has been so far. So... <laughs> Next week, uh, yeah, the invitation has an Apple logo with six colors shining from behind it. It says one more thing, which is, you know, like uh, a joke on the fact that they've already had two more two events. And oh, by the way, there's one more event in 2020. And I'm glad there is because this is what I've been waiting for, you know, for a long time now. Uh, the other thing related to this, I think it's in the same Bloomberg story. This is not about the Apple event next week, but just, hey, let's just throw in all the things that we think we know. It's a quote from the article. Apple engineers are currently developing a new Mac Pro that looks like the current design at about half the size. And they have one of these uh, nonsense lines. It's unclear if the Mac will replace the current Mac Pro or if it's an additional model, right? <laughs> so Covering your butt. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, it could be this or it could be... Yeah, you're right. You've outlined the possibilities. Good job. Um, a smaller Mac Pro that looks like the current design, presumably an ARM one. We've been talking about, you know, what it's going to take to replace the Mac Pro with an ARM computer in relation to, like, GPUs and slots and all this other stuff. And can they or will they make an ARM computer that uses a discrete GPU? Can you replace the Mac Pro if you don't do that? Because how big of a GPU can you shove on a system on a chip? We talked about the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X that have a system on a chip with the CPU and a GPU all jammed into one and how powerful they can be. Uh, the short answer is that don't worry about the 16-inch MacBook Pro with a quote-unquote integrated GPU. If that sounds crappy to you, do not worry. You can't. It is technically possible to fit a fairly amazing uh, GPU on an uh, ARM system on a chip using Apple's tech stack. Will they put an amazing one in there or just put a so-so one? We'll see. We have to see what they release. But I'm saying there's no technical barrier in a 16-inch power envelope and form factor to having a really good GPU on the system on a chip that rivals or exceeds any discrete GPU that Apple has used in its laptops, right? So don't worry about that. But when it comes to the Mac Pro, oh, well, you know, I can have, you know, this, these giant, extremely hot 
you know, 400 watt GPUs inside there, you're not going to put that on a system on a chip. So this has to support discrete GPUs. And if it does, what brands will they be? And will it have slots and yada, yada, yada. And now his rumors of a smaller one. I think the Bloomberg story spun this into, okay, well then maybe it's like a Mac Pro, but a Mac Pro that has an integrated GPU because it's so much smaller. And it's like, what the hell? It's not a Mac Pro if it doesn't have any slots because the whole point of the Mac Pro is to be a computer with slots. You know, and it's just like a really big Mac Mini. At that point, which is fine. If you want to make a really big Mac Mini, cool. People would like that computer. But anyway, this is a very confused rumor. The only reason I included it here is because there was this tweet that I saw from Hishnash. I can't tell if that's a nickname um, or maybe it's a scary Halloween name. Um, <laughs> apparently, there are already ARM64 afterburner PCIe card drivers in the betas, and the driver kit APIs make it clear that there will be ARM Max with PCIe slots. So if you're wondering, will any ARM Macs ever have slots? It seems like, based on drivers that are in beta versions of the US, that that will be the case. Now, it doesn't mean, like, just because you see PCIe drivers, I think a lot of things in the current Macs are actually on PCIe buses, but maybe there aren't slots. But the fact that there are drivers for Afterburner, ARM64 drivers for Afterburner, and Afterburner is that card that you can stick in the Mac Pro that does this FPGA card that does all that uh, 8K video stream decoding or whatever, makes it seem like, some point a year or two from now there will be a computer with an arm processor that's a mac that has pci slots that one of which at least takes the afterburner card right so i'm not holding my breath for an arm based mac pro this year or not even next year but the year after that it would be cool to see them and in the meantime if apple wants to release a little miniature computer with a bunch of holes in the front for a huge price that has maybe one or two slots that'd be cool too an integrated gpu i don't know quite what that machine would be but i'm intrigued by the half-size mac pro rumor if you look at the mac pro and you look at how the space in the case is used if you are gonna still have a computer that supports large pci slots which is what you need for like big gpus and stuff like if, if you still want to support those and you want to have like maybe support for more than one large pci gpu which seems to be one of the biggest reasons the Mac Pro exists. If if that's still a requirement, I don't see how you make it half the size. Because again, like if you look at how the space is used, most of the space in there is to accommodate large PCI cards. The only way they can make it meaningfully smaller is either to stop accommodating those, which I, I don't see them doing. Like They were pretty clear when they made the new Mac Pro. They, they were very clear in both public statements they gave and in, in statements they made to various press and in little mumblings from the from the people who were like in the demo room and everything, they were very clear that like they're they they really are in this and they're in this for the expandability, the modularity, and they love supporting multiple GPUs and, and all these PCI cards and stuff. Like they learned. They learned from the trash can Mac Pro that people didn't want something super integrated and small for that product. They want something big and expandable that can take a bunch of cards. And Thunderbolt wasn't going to save them. They learned that too. Like they just they learned, okay, you know what? Cards it is. That's what that's what pros actually need and use in this market. So that's what we'll give them. So I can't see them abandoning that, even though I also have a hard time understanding like how will the ARM CPUs work with third-party GPUs because I don't I don't know enough about the like hardware engineering behind that and like I assume they figured it out <laughs> but but like you know that's certainly a big question mark and it would not surprise me if none of the laptops have 
non-Apple GPUs in them. Yeah, there's there's no there's no reason like because like I said, there, if if you're just looking to match or exceed the discrete GPU power of Apple's current laptop line, there's no reason you need discrete, right? So unless they really want to, you know, go big and have some fancy new AMD GPU that's so much more powerful than what they could fit in the system on a chip, but honestly, I don't see that because in a laptop form factor, you have you have your power envelope, and if you know if you have to spend it somewhere, right, and you have some sort of minimum CPU that you have to include just for it to be considered a good laptop, right? You get more bang for your buck by putting the rest of your power spend on that GPU inside the system on a chip. As soon as you put it in a discrete package somewhere else on the board, that's more power that you're you're bleeding on the interconnects and everything, right? So why would they ever go discrete? Right, and do we know our, I mean, I assume, are the RMAX all going to have unified memory? Oh, interesting. I mean, that's what we've been talking about. Like, you know, what what does that mean in this context? We were talking about in, in terms of like the uh, the discrete GPU, right? Because yeah, no, all all the ARM Macs will have quote unquote unified memory, which means there's not a separate bank of RAM only used by the GPU, right? That that all it'll be it'll be like it is on the phones and the iPads, where it's just one big pool of RAM. Some of it's used for video crap. Some of it's used for just regular programs and stuff. But it's not like when you get a, a video a gaming video card and on the card itself is GDDR6 RAM with some huge bandwidth directly connected to the GPU and that's what the GPU uses but then because that introduces a problem of okay well how the hell does anything get in the quote unquote video RAM well it has to be sent there from elsewhere so it's probably read from disk or something into regular RAM and sent over the PCI bus or you've done some DMA thing where it travels over some bus and gets into the card then the card uses it but oh actually you need some more textures now so you have these textures and replace those old textures and there's a lot of traffic back and forth and the the one of the advantages of unified memory architecture is you don't have to bring the textures from storage into one place and then send it to another place to be used. And it's just like you just put it into memory and then it's available to both the CPU and the GPU. So if they both need to reference it, you don't need to have two copies, right? And there's a bunch of memory syncing parameters and crap like that. But in general, it's there are some speed advantages to having unified. The advantage to having discrete is you can make a RAM that is tailor-made to the use case of a video card, which means lots of, you know, High bandwidth, you know what you're going to be reading. You're reading like textures and geometry data and crap like that, right? It's not, you know what purpose the RAM is going to be used for. So you can make RAM that has higher bandwidth or, you know, a lower latency because it's closer to the GPU and stuff like that, right? So there are trade-offs there, but I don't think that's a technical barrier. And for laptops, I would put money on the fact that they're going to be essentially like big iPads where it's the same architecture, but more. Yeah. And like, and I'm, I'm pretty confident. Like, I think we all are 100% confident Apple's probably going to kick butt in the CPU performance department. They'll be very competitive. They have CPU performance pretty well covered, I bet. GPU performance is a question mark, I think, for a lot of it, especially at the high end. We know Apple can make great GPUs for iPad class devices because they have been. So we know that like, we're, we're pretty well covered for the laptop category that used to use that used to use integrated graphics. So uh, on those points, that would be like the 13-inch category, uh, The also even like the cheap iMacs use integrated graphics, the Mac Mini. Like we know things that used only integrated graphics before, Apple will be able to cover that need pretty well, we think, with, with their GPUs. We don't know if they could make GPUs that are competitive with that high end yet. And that's like, I, I was initially guessing that the GPU development might actually slow down 
uh, the high-end product release cycle in the ARM transition such that I was expecting the first few ARM Macs to only be the ones that have had an integrated GPU so far. So to only be the you know 12-slash-13-inch size category there uh, in the laptops, plus the cheap iMac and the Mac Mini. Like, that's what I was guessing. If they are actually, if this report is correct, which, I mean, it's Bloomberg. That's, this is a big if, let's be honest. But if this report is correct, and a 16-inch MacBook Pro is going to be included in the first batch, that's a significant move because that product does use high-end GPUs. So if they can actually be competitive already with high-end GPUs with their own design and not use discrete in that product, that's going to be significantly notable You know, beyond all the other stuff that's going to be notable about this. So I'm, I'm very curious to see that because... I hate the discrete GPUs in the big laptops. They are hot. They are buggy. They burn up the battery like crazy. Like, and the, the whole system is buggy with like switching between GPUs. Like, it it's just it's a it's a big pile of hacks. And if we can get away from needing that, that'll be much better. So, I'm very interested to see that product. And then I'm also interested with this report here. It doesn't mention the 12 inch coming back, and that surprises me as well. I again, I, I would have and previously did guess that the, that the 12 inch would return as one of the first ARM Macs, like that would launch with. I, I never thought it would be the only one, but I predicted that would probably return because I think they're going to want to show off how awesome it is. That they're saving all this power and yet have this great performance, and I think they're going to want some kind of like statement Mac that they couldn't make before. But maybe that isn't ready yet. Well, maybe the 13-inch MacBook Air will be fanless. Uh, maybe. I mean, that. yeah, that actually, you know, from a practical point of view, that's probably what they should do because that's such a popular computer already. So to, to make it, like, probably significantly faster and fanless and possibly get a boost in GPU performance, which usually has been historically pretty rough on that, on that computer... You know, that, that that could be significant for that. I mean, just think of it like an iPad Pro that's a laptop, right? Because iPad Pro gets 10 hours of battery life. No one complains about the CPU speed, and the GPU is pretty darn good, too. So there you go. That's a fanless MacBook Air. All you have to do is the form <laughs> factor stuff. And maybe you could have an even longer battery life, depending on how big the battery you can fit in is. So, you know, we'll see. Like, I, I don't... The, I, the reason I thought this rumor was optimistic is it was saying there's going to be three new Macs, right? Your concerns about the 16-inch MacBook Pro, like I said, technically speaking... Apple absolutely can put out a 16-inch MacBook Pro using its A14 system-on-a-chip-derived Mac chip because the GPU is easy to scale up. You just add more execution units, right? They've already got an architecture that works. It works great. It supports all the features they need. You would just need to scale it up, which means you need to make a bigger chip, you know, more power, so on and so forth. But, like, think of again, think of the power envelope. The power envelope of a 16-inch MacBook Pro with a fan in it is so much higher than the power envelope of, a, of an iPad Pro with no fan in it, right? They have the room to do that. The only question, is, and again, he's like, well, how big can you make a quote-unquote integrated GPU? Look at the PlayStation 5. You can make it pretty darn big. Look at the Xbox Series X, right? Obviously, those are bigger power envelopes than MacBook Pro, but still, I'm saying like this not integrated doesn't mean you can't make it that big. The only question is, will Apple make it that big? Because scaling up the integrated GPU that much in your first go is aggressive, right? Maybe the first line of them will be, okay, well, on the 16-inch, we put a bigger GPU in it, but it's more like the A14Z. You know what I mean? Uh, like, it's not, we didn't go whole hog, right? On the first go out, we didn't want to knock it out of the park with a gigantic, you know, 16 execution units to use Apple's parlance or whatever they're calling an execution unit, right? 
or 16 core or whatever. They said like the uh, the A12Z was eight an eight core GPU, and I think that's the biggest one they've ever shipped. The A12X was a seven core, but only because they allowed one of the cores to be uh, disabled if it was bad, right? So it's really the same chip, but just an eight core chip. If they put out a 16 core chip and you just scale that up uh, linearly for doubling the execution units in it or doubling the cores or whatever, that is a very competitive MacBook Pro GPU. Because remember, MacBook Pros are not gaming laptops. They don't. They have never come with the GPU that's setting the world on fire in terms of laptop performance. PC gaming laptops come with much more powerful GPUs. Apple doesn't have to match that. They just have to match their previously shipped top-of-the-line 16-inch MacBook Pro discrete GPU performance, match or exceed. I think there it's plausible that they can do that with a modest, conservative iteration expansion of their current design. I think they can knock it out of the park with a very aggressive, much larger system on a chip for a laptop and have something that is, if not competitive with PC gaming laptops, at least faster than any MacBook Pro Apple has ever shipped. So I think what I'm looking for, if there is a 16-inch at all, is... It's a question of will. What does, you know, as in like, does Apple want to do this? Is this something Apple is trying to do? Or are they just taking it easy on the first round? And then, you know, the 13-inch and all those things, that's no problem. Like, they, could, they get a ship what they have and everyone will be happy with it and it's not a big deal. It's only We only care about the GPU stuff in the high end. So um, I'm, I'm not looking at, for it to be a technical marvel. I'm looking at to see what is Apple willing to do. What does Apple actually consider performance? Maybe the Pro Workflow Group has had an influence on this. We're saying like, look, don't even bother making a 16-inch MacBook Pro on ARM if you can't, you know, totally thrash your current GPU performance in your 16-inch MacBook Pro. We'll see. So what do you think is going to be first? Because I, I agree that the adorable, you know, the original 12-inch MacBook I think that is the one that that strikes me as most obvious as being a good candidate for an ARM Mac. And certainly the part of me that it still misses that computer, because I do, um, I don't want to have to plug in more than one thing at a time, but I still miss it. Uh, you know, I would love to see that gain a port or two or three and get, you know, uh, about 800% more power. So that does seem like a really obvious first candidate, but I mean, I would be very surprised as you guys have mentioned, if a 16 inch gets it first, do you, do you really think that's a possibility? Let's start with Marco. I don't know. The 16 inch to me is a big stretch for this. I I, I agree. I hope they do it. I think that would be awesome. And keep in mind, you know, Tim did say at the announcement that they plan to complete the entire transition in two years. So you know, I was assuming, as I said, I was assuming that the the large GPU high high performance things would be the second half of the transition. But if they can plant the 16 inch now, that's a huge move, and and that would be very interesting to me. Someone in the chat room is yelling 16 inch MacBook Air. Um, so like that's the that's the real question that we don't know, right? Because because these are the first ARM Macs, right? And although it is a safe assumption that they will use A14-ish system on a chips, as in whatever that core is and whatever that GPU design is, it'll be some evolution of that, right? That's a reasonable, safe assumption. Uh, further uh, enforced by the fact that all of Apple's iPhones just use the A14. Like, it's great to be able to just manufacture one thing and design one thing and you have it be multi-purpose. So whether or not they call this the M something or the X something or whatever naming scheme they come up with, whatever the code name is, I don't know the current one, but whatever the code name is for these cores, 
they have code names for all these things like Cyclone, Typhoon. I think they're all Storm-based names. And whatever the code name is for this GPU design, those are their building blocks. So you can take those high efficiency cores, those power cores, and those GPU cores, and you can and you know, and all the I/O plus whatever else you need to make it a Mac, right, with the Thunderbolt stuff and or whatever, and build your Mac GPU from those parts, right? It doesn't make sense for them to make an entirely new core, an entirely new GPU or whatever. But given those parts, you can build lots of differently sized things. And the real question is, what appetite does Apple have to really use those building blocks to make very different things? They, if they have a big appetite, they're like, great, we're going to do like four high efficiency cores and six, uh, you know, or, you know, six high efficiency cores and four power cores plus a 16 core GPU. And we're going to launch the 16-inch MacBook Pro with this thing, and it's going to kick butt. Because that system on a chip would look nothing like anything in any of their phones or iPads. If you looked at the die, you'd be like, oh, I recognize those uh, high-efficiency cores and those power cores, and I recognize those GPU cores, right? But that, what, a, what a monster this is. Like, this is a heck of a, you know, new design job to make this whole new chip, right? And it's like, boy, that's, that's a big investment for something that's going to sell relatively nothing compared to the iPhone, Right. Uh, and they use the same A14 across all their iPhones. So they have this one chip that they make for their best-selling product. And then the Macs are going to get like these bespoke, like the 16-inch is going to have one chip. And then the 13-inch is going to have another. And maybe the Air will have another. That's That seems unlikely to me, at least on a first go. What seems more likely to me is every single one of these Macs will have a very similar looking chip that looks an awful lot like the same chip they're putting in the, in their iPhones that will soon be in their iPads. It's already in one of their iPads. It'll look very A14-ish and there won't be a huge diversity. They'll look different than the A14. Maybe some of them will like literally be A14s under a different name. Don't look like on the, on the, you know, the 13-ish thing or whatever. That just seems like so much more of a smart, sort of Tim Cook style parts sharing. Let's not rock the boat too much. Let's not have to do something totally new because it just seems weird to me that that they would not try, you know, on the on the very first set of computers that they would not try to reuse as much as possible from their iPhone. Which is part of the benefit of bringing the Mac to ARM is like, we'll just get, we'll get more bang for our buck out of this. But the Mac is, I'm going to say a sideshow compared to the iPhone. They did, did have 30% year-over-year growth because everyone's got to be working from home and everything, so that's great for the Mac. But, boy, that would really be shocking and pleasantly surprising to me if they said, you know what, we have three totally new chips for our Macs, and none of them are exactly like the A14, and one of them is very unlike the A14. <laughs> I, you know, I, don't even, I didn't even believe this rumor that they're going to have three laptops. I just want one laptop. I'm just I'm happy with one laptop. Are you getting it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. If I the thing is, <laughs> if it's the 16 inch, I'm gonna be like, oh come on. Cause I don't I don't wanna buy my is this like a homework laptop not a homework laptop, a school laptop, because all school is remote now. For my kids, I don't need to buy a two thousand dollar computer so they can run Zoom, although based on how much the fans spin up when they use Zoom, who knows? But <laughs> I would prefer that Apple release a 13 inch MacBook Air type of laptop and i would be fine if that thing had just a straight up a14 in it perfectly fine give me a macbook air with an a14 and 10 hours of battery life sold day one if they release a 16 inch macbook pro with weird compromises because it's got a 14 it's got an a14 chip in it with not beefy enough gpu and they want two grand for it i'm gonna be a little yeah 
So this is this is the test. How much when we see this event, how much investment does Apple want to put into the system on its chips for Mac? We have no idea because Apple has never made its own processors ever for the Mac, unless you kind of count the PowerPC because they were part of the AIM Alliance. What does AIM stand for? Do you guys remember? Apple, Intel, Motorola. So close. AOL Instant Messenger. Oh, IBM, IBM. God, how did I get that wrong? <laughs> I'm an idiot. Yeah. Good grief, no, I'm a moron. Apple, IBM, and Motorola teamed up to make the PowerC processor, and it was really cool. But those are this. This reminds me of those days. Only Motorola and IBM are gone. <laughs> Not gone, but you know what I mean. I can't believe I got that wrong. My dad worked for IBM for 30 years. How did I get that wrong? <laughs> well, it's because IBM's already uh, an abbreviation or acronym or whatever. Mm-hmm. Abbreviation, sorry, not acronym. Initialism, I believe. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, um, so I'm curious, do either of you think that this event, not not our Max in general down the road, but do you think this event we will see other changes to the lineup, significant changes to you know externally visible factors or not? Because like when you look at the Intel switch, the the earlier Intel machines didn't look significantly different than the PowerPC machines they replaced. Like the the differences became more obvious over time, and and like you know there were like more physical changes, more exterior visible changes over time. But the first batch didn't look that different. I'm wondering, like, do like are are they going to take this chance now to? make big statements with the hardware changes um you know beyond just changing the guts or might that come down the road and i'm thinking specifically specifically about like you know significant form factor changes you know like not only taking the existing cases and stuffing them with new guts that are faster and cooler and get better battery life but maybe making things thinner and lighter as they tend to do um or changing major things about ports which hopefully not because that would probably result in fewer of them Um, sorry uh, apple silicon can only have one port we've seen that yeah (laughs) um or you know or other things like one little ray of hope multicolored ray of hope i have is on the event invitation it shows a not quite rainbow but a multicolored light behind the apple logo and i was thinking there was that rumor two years ago or last year that they were considering bringing back a rainbow Apple logo. And what if they did something with these colors as some kind of light up logo on it? Like I, I understand this is a stretch. I honestly, I don't think that's, I don't think this is likely, but wouldn't that be fun? Like, wouldn't it be cool if the arm max had some kind of like notable visible hardware change about them right from day one? And this is ignoring other possibilities like them being touchscreens or, you know, things like that, which are also big possibilities. But, like, do you think uh, we'll see anything like that? Or do you think that might come down the road, if ever? Yeah, the touchscreen Mac thing, I think, is looming out there and will be, if it's not announced on these first set of Macs, I'm just, we're all just waiting for the iMac shoe to drop. Like that whole, you know, iMac is due for a redesign. Uh, The Surface Studio is out there. So touch is a thing to watch for. But setting that aside, I like I mentioned a, a fanless 13-inch MacBook Air. I I think if you if Apple's going to release an ARM-based Mac to replace the MacBook Air, there is no reason that it has to be any faster than the iPad Pro. But I don't think for that price class and for you know the MacBook Air, they're you know they're cheap small laptop, right? It's not for pros. It's supposed to be thin and light. Blah blah blah. Why would you? use the same four factor as the current MacBook Air. 
like because you don't need a fan like it you don't need it to be faster than the ipad pro the ipad pro is plenty fast maybe the ram is putting you over maybe i'm underestimating how much heat is put out by the ram because you do need more ram for a mac but uh if there is a form factor change at all and and it's laptops that are introduced i think the only form factor change you're going to see aside from touchscreen possibly is a, a mac in the lineup that was previously not fanless becomes fanless because it can and that may be minor form factor change, as in they just cover up the fan holes and it's the same case. Or it could be a more major one, as in they slim it down because they can, right? I don't anticipate for this first round that the 16-inch MacBook Pro will change significantly. Just because these computers are already so elemental, like they're especially the 16-inch MacBook Pro, it's like, well, it's a rectangle with the stuff inside it and about <laughs> with no with no room for anything else and it's going to be the same stuff it's going to be a motherboard and a bunch of batteries and a trackpad right and maybe the touchscreen will change the form factor a little bit but beyond that i don't see them redesigning that case for the very first line of pros but i would not be shocked if we saw a slightly redesigned case for the 13 inch yeah i don't know i i keep arguing with myself about it as i'm listening to you guys and I my gut tells me they will not change the form factor in any significant way, and I think the most likely change is what John just said, that the things that once had fans will have fans no more. But I can, I can make some pretty passionate arguments for them to change the form factor, for them to make a big splash and try to take away any reluctance anyone has in upgrading and by saying, you know, hey, you know, you're going to get this new chip and this sweet new design. And so people who maybe don't care about the chip will want that sweet new look. And I, I think if it were me, what I would rather do is reincarnate, you know, the adorable and say, not only can you get a 13-inch MacBook Pro with our chip that runs better, cooler, etc., but Remember that old thing, which of course I would never say that old piece of garbage slow thing, but effectively remember that old thing that, you know, had trade-offs. Don't forget the keyboard everyone loved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you remember the old thing that had trade-offs that had a different keyboard and it it wasn't really as fast. You're so kind. Trade-offs, different. Well, no, I'm saying that's what Apple would say. (laughs) Oh, yeah. If it were me, remember this piece of shit that we made all of you buy, especially that Casey guy who who (laughs) loved it, even though he shouldn't. Anyway, that guy's an idiot. But moving on, uh, (laughs) you know, but yeah, they would say, oh, remember that machine with all those trade-offs? And now, because of Apple Silicon, you don't have to have any trade-offs anymore, except it only has one port. But you don't have to have trade-offs in power. You don't have to have the old keyboard. You have this beautiful machine, and it has only one port, but it's so fast now, and this screen is better for reasons, and so on and so forth. Like, I could totally see them doing that, and and, and so I think if I were to wager a guess, my number one guess is they aesthetically little to nothing changes. Number two, um, aesthetically little to nothing changes, but they add like a 12-inch or 11-inch or something like that, you know, something that is not currently in their lineup. Uh, and then my final, my, my least likely guess is that, yeah, they would just rip the Band-Aid off right now and, and make everything look different. What about in colors? The uh, the 12-inch, what are the 12-inch coming? Gold, uh, silver, and space gray? I think that's right. Pink. There was a pink. Yeah, I was, was going to say one. pink, right. and then I, then I thought I was wrong. So I was thinking of the, you know, the uh, the new iPad Airs that comes in, come in colors. It's totally a thing they could do with their, you know, they have done before with their smaller laptops. 
it's an easy way to uh, make a little bit of extra sale. And like, uh, you know, the fact that they were willing to do it on a relatively low volume, again, compared to the iPhone product, shows that they're not afraid of the inventory management difficulties of having a bunch of different color choices. So yeah, if you want to spice things up a little bit cheaply, it doesn't, you know, you don't require a whole new redesign, just whatever this process they have of anodizing or coloring their aluminum, make a pink one, make a gold one, make a blue one and make a green one, whatever. Like that's, People like that. Why not do it? Yeah, I would love more fun color options for the laptops. Especially, like, all the fun color options were only ever for their smallest and lowest end models. Like, do pros not have the ability to have fun? Yeah. Well, as discussed, apparently not, because look at the phones. I mean, I agree with I you. Mean, but, but, at least, but the phones at least got a midnight, whatever. Uh, what is it? Was it midnight green and then Pacific blue? So those mm-hmm. two tints? Space green and space blue. That's exactly what we're talking about on the Macs, where it was like whatever it was rose gold or, you know, space gray. Those are just as subtle as the current Pro phone colors. That's all we're asking for. We're not asking for the product red MacBook Air, which would be awesome. But that's not, that's not what we're asking for. Why aren't we asking for that? Give it the, well, I mean, because the laptops are so big, putting a very saturated color is quite a statement, and it may be difficult to sell those in large enough volumes to make it worthwhile. I feel like a subtle tint on... You know, something as big as laptop is reasonable. Although black one would be cool. Like we're all open to color choices. Uh, that that thing you're talking about, Marco, with the Rainbow Apple logo was. Did somebody do a mock-up where it was like, it was like a a black Apple logo on the back of the screen of the laptop, but then coming from behind it and shining out around the edges was rainbow colors, right? I mean, it doesn't really make much sense if you think about it, because one of the reasons they got rid of the light up Apple logo on the back of their things is because the screens got so thin. There really is not enough room to have the, you know, the light shining out in both directions there because like, you're not going to sacrifice thickness to do that. Uh, but who knows? Uh, you know, as the kids love their RGBs, right? Uh, and you can chuck a bunch of those inside a computer and make it cool looking. But Johnny's not there anymore. No one's going to stop you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my final question on this, uh, Marco, are, are you and I, especially you, getting a cellular Mac tomorrow or the next week? Oh, I hope so. I honestly, I don't think so. I I think if cellular was coming to Max, we would probably have seen people noticing bits and pieces of the support for it in the software betas that are that are that we're having these days. And we, I don't think I've heard anything about that. So probably not. But I wish we would. Well, what what about the fact that uh, that uh, Mac OS eleven point oh we don't see anymore and now the new betas are 11.01 and everyone assumes 11.0 is the arm only build maybe we just never saw that build maybe it was never distributed to developers and maybe that's the one that has the face id support for the for the face id on the apple laptops <laughs> and the the cellular support you know what i mean I, I mean i would love that but apple has not been good about that kind of thing recently <laughs> like keeping 100 percent, you know hiding things from the betas they did it with the iPhone. They did the same thing with iOS, right? Where like the builds jumped for developers and then like 14, all right? So in 14, not that there was a lot of new hardware on the iPhones, but things about like the Dolby Vision or whatever didn't leak because we never got the build with the support for the Dolby Vision stuff because the only devices that supported that were the phones that hadn't yet been released. And they like they branched off the tree and said, okay, this is the going forward. This is the tree that's going to go manufacture. What was it? 14.1 is going to be released on the iPhone 12s. Right, and then developers are going to start on fourteen point two beta. I don't know. You could be right that they're just bad about hiding these things, but it seems that 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 strategy, that new strategy of hey, cut the build for the dedicated hardware and then jump the developers to the next one that still lacks that stuff and merge it in later, may be helping them hide stuff from us. 
Yeah, I mean, it's possible, but ultimately, I I don't think it's likely. I, I think it's much more likely that they are as good as they've been recently <laughs> with that kind of thing, which is to say they tend to hide most stuff, but regularly slip up and let little trickles of things out. Uh, so I, I'm guessing we we don't have a cellular, cellular yet, but I, I would love to be wrong on this. I hope I'm wrong about this. Overall, though, what, what I what I mostly hope is I know this is a, this is kind of a tall order given the you know the year that everyone's had um, and you know maybe they had to hold certain things back or push certain things until version two or whatever. But what I really hope ultimately is that there is something else besides the guts are much better about whatever the new lineup is. And I know that that's like you know the guts are getting a lot better. <laughs> like it's it's not a small thing. So that itself is going to be exciting. But I hope there's also just something else, some some other like wow factor that makes the products cooler looking or or cooler feeling and makes you even happier to use them. And gut upgrades can do that to a, to a large degree, you know, like and in certain special ways, like as John mentioned, like if they go fanless where they weren't before or if they're much cooler to type on, your hands don't get hot. You don't have to run utilities like tur- like Turbo Boost Switcher, uh, you know, to, to make them not suck. Like that's all nice and that's all big stuff. But I, guess I hope there's something else that we can do that we couldn't do before or some new physical thing about them that looks or feels great or something like that beyond just they're faster and run cooler. Yeah, I give them a little bit of leeway, like I said, for this first round of things. But come after this transition is done and it's the second round of Max, they'd better have face ID, right? They'd better have cellular. Like, there's no more excuses for any of this stuff. It's like, oh, we can't do face. It's like, figure it out. Like, everything you're using, your phones can do it. Your iPads can do it. Like, they can do cellular. Just, it's the same system on a chip. You've got all the stuff. You've got the cell modems. It's like, just make it happen. Like, this is supposed to be, as far as I'm concerned, one of the payoffs of this should be that all those features that we haven't been getting on Max for a long time finally comes to Max. Like, oh, just it's going to be very frustrating to me if we're like five years into the ARM transition and not a single Mac has Face ID. I just, it's, I'm warning you now, ATP listeners, you're going to hear me get increasingly angry about this over a long time scale. Us? You know, yeah, I give, <laughs> I give them some leeway for the first few years, but at a certain point, you need to put Face ID in a Mac for crying out loud. And I'm not going to be screaming about the touch thing, Right, because you mentioned like I want them to be cooler in some way. Touches we haven't been talking that much about that one, but we talked about it a lot more about Big Sur and how it is so getting the Mac ready to have touches a piece of input. I'm ready any time for that, but I'm also willing to say if you don't want to do that in the first round because it's too confusing and you want it to, them to seem familiar, like whatever. I'm I'm not going to be screaming about touch in five years. I will be screaming about Face ID in five years because please, Apple, please. <laughs> Very effective <laughs> argument. All right, thanks to our sponsors this week, Squarespace, Linode, and Away. And thank you to our members who support us directly. You can go to atp.fm slash join if you'd like to become a member. You get all sorts of cool benefits. Thank you, everybody, and we will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin Because it was accidental. accidental Oh, it was accidental. accidental John didn't do Search Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them at C
E-Y-L-I-S-S, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O, A-R-M, E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, USA Syracuse, it's accidental. I would like to suggest an after show and I would like to talk about video games. I am in for this because not, not because I'm especially super into them, but I just want to know why you want to talk about them because you're not usually super into them. Right. So a very, very brief recap of my video game history. I grew up on Nintendo's um, for pretty much my entire life. Uh, I had, I think every system except the GameCube be, you know, through adolescence and then adulthood, uh, didn't pay attention for a long time around the GameCube era. I had a Wii, which we used mostly casually for, you know, the sorts of games that the Wii was really good at. Um, and then, uh, we got a switch not too long after it was brand new and, I play it occasionally. I really enjoy the Switch quite a bit. I don't play it that often, and usually if I am playing it, I'm playing something with Declan. Um, but you know, I do think it's a really great system. As someone who is no longer a connoisseur, I think it's a really great system, and I think it's a very clever, um, a very clever system. So Declan has been slowly getting into video games. Um, it, well, left to his own devices, he would just play video games nonstop. But we, you know, are still in the perspective and and the and he's still of the age that we pretty severely limit his video game playing and um he really likes mario karts and to you know a lesser degree other mario properties and as it turns out his birthday was a week after mario kart what is it mario kart live home circuit came out i think that's the right name for oh it. that's out uh, mm-hmm. oh, i want to hear about that so, if you're not familiar, I will try to put a link in the show notes um, to the like trailer that came out, uh, I don't know, a few months ago. And it is worth very quickly, if you're in a position that you can do so, it is very, it is worth very quickly pausing the podcast and watching this like two minute trailer. Um, but I will describe for you, I will paint a word picture of what this is all about. So, this is a game for the Switch. And it's something, I think it was like $100 or something like that, uh, because it's not only a game, it's also a physical remote-controlled car. Like an actual, real live, you hold it in your hands, remote-controlled car. And it also has a series of cardboard gates, for lack of a better term, basically little like kind of sort of arches. And the premise is, is that you set up, there are four of these gates, and you set you set these gates up around your home, and then you put the cart on the ground and after you've paired it with the switch. And as you are driving in the game, you're driving the remote controlled car in real life. And the remote controlled car has a little camera on it. So you are seeing the perspective of the remote control car as you're racing through your own house on the switch on the TV. It is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. It is phenomenally cool. Will it last more than 20 minutes? Is this going to be like a flash in the pan? You know, oh, that was really clever, but I don't care anymore. Maybe. I don't know. But it is Mario Kart in real life. Now, if we wanted to, if we had a second switch, which we do not yet, um, we could get a second switch and we could get like another 
hundred dollar setup for like Luigi, if you will. Um, and we could race two physical carts against each other in real life. It is the coolest thing. So Declan and I, you know, started playing it or well, really he started playing it, but I helped him set up the course. The, uh, the distance that the cart can work is less than I would have hoped. I understand why it's broadcasting video at hopefully at least, you know, 20, 30 frames a second, maybe as much as 60 frames a second. Um, and it's doing this through the air. And I think it's actually doing this via like a peer to peer airdrop style Wi-Fi network. I think I am not confident about this, but I read somewhere something about Wi-Fi reception, but it also says you have to be within like five meters of the switch. Um, so, so our downstairs, which Marco has seen, but, but John hasn't, although it's been a long time for Marco. Um, basically our, our living room is adjacent to our playroom, you know, the kids playroom. And then if you were to go and go out the playroom, you're at the front door. And then if you, you know, do a UE, you're going down a hallway and then you can come back to the living room. So what we did was we made a big like circle. If you're oval, I guess you should I should say of the downstairs and, it worked okay at that distance, but when you were at the extreme edge of that oval away from the switch, it complained pretty much every single time about, oh, the you know, the connection's poor, the video got real choppy, the latency on the commands to the RC unit were definitely was definitely really bad. But when you limit it to being slightly closer and not through several walls, it turns out it works really well. So um, it is it is the first time that I can remember seeing augmented reality, which I consider this to be a, a flavor of AR. It's the first time I've seen this and gone, holy smokes, that's amazing. It is such a cool game. It is such a cool technical demo. Even, I mean, the game is fun. Don't get me wrong. I've only played it a couple times because Declan, unsurprisingly, has been kind of bogarting it. But um, it is a very fun game. But just as a technical demo, it is so incredibly cool. And I cannot recommend it enough. And I just wanted to bring it up because it's very unusual, as Marco said, for me, of all people, to want to talk about video games. And I just think this is such a well-executed, awesome, awesome toy and video game that I just couldn't help but bring it up. I will point out also that, it, like many things for the Nintendo Switch, including the Switch itself, uh, it is currently seemingly backordered everywhere. And if you actually want to order it from somewhere like Amazon right now, you'll, you're going to have to pay like $500. But the actual Holy price sucks. of it is $100. <laughs> uh, you're right, Casey. So uh, keep an eye out if you if you want this. Like, keep an eye on things and... and you know, don't if you're thinking maybe they should get this for my kids for Christmas or something like you might want to get that sooner rather than later if you can, because I think it's going to only get harder to get. Yeah. One of the fun things about this game. All right. This is it's kind of like uh, the old saying of like, you know, 20 miles an hour on the water feels like 60 miles an hour on land. Right. Yes. Well, yes. So these these cars, when you're looking through the camera and driving them, it feels a lot faster than it actually is. If you look at the actual car driving on the ground, you're like. Is this a racing game? Because they seem like they're going pretty slow. And I, Casey, can correct me wrong, but I believe the 50cc, 100cc, and so on and so forth translates into the speed of the physical car yep. as well. Is that true? Yeah, we, I've only tried it very briefly, but yes, that's correct. And while I'm thinking of it just very quickly, uh, if you get hit by like a banana peel or something, you don't spin like you would right. in the traditional Mario, Kart, Mario Kart game, but your cart stops. You can drift using the cart. Now, what that really means is it's, it's like altering the steering angle that it's asking the... Um, that it's asking the cart to execute, but 
it's still doing a drift it, well a quote-unquote drift in the real world and in the game like it, it's it is extremely extremely well done yeah and it feel like when you're looking through a little camera you feel like you're going way faster because things are coming up on you it's like when you just get low to the ground and you move at a slow speed so it's taking advantage of that um and that that's pretty cool some of the limitations i've seen lots of the video reviews on youtube is like it does not deal with hills well so if you construct a course in your house that involves hills, the game is not <laughs> particularly, the game doesn't understand them and the game doesn't really like them. It'll work okay as long as you get something you have traction on. Um, if you're used to playing Mario Kart and shooting people with mushrooms and in case you're running, yes, like that, all that stuff is still there. Obviously the mushrooms and, you know, turtle shells and all the other stuff, those are virtual. Like this, the AR aspect of it. The car is real. The arches are real. Your house is real. The turtle shells are not real. The mushrooms are not real. You know, all that stuff. Uh, but in the real game, if you hit someone with the shell, you can't, I mean, I don't know if you, if there's, if it's no clipping whatsoever, but you can go past them slash through them on your way to victory. Whereas in real life, these cars are actually fairly big. And if you hit someone with a turtle shell and they come to a dead stop in front of you, you've got to steer around them. If you don't, you will hit them because they are a physical thing. And so are you. And so clunk, right? So you may have to adjust your Mario Kart, uh, strategy and skills like there are limitations like that that you can understand there's only four gates you can't set them that far apart um if you play against computers i believe the computers take a perhaps a more direct route between carts than you had intended because you made a cool serpentine course but they just know where the gates are so the computer <laughs> cars will well that's slightly that's slightly true so the way it works is when you set up these gates then what they have you do is in, in on the screen uh, I forget the name of the character, but like the little floaty guy, little floaty um, uh, toad-like person will come down and put paint on your tires on screen. And then what you're just, what you're supposed to do is drive the course. Well, if you make it like super serpentine and whatnot, it records that and it factors that into the course. It's, so it's not just going through the gates. The gates are the guideposts for sure, but it's also, you know, what was what was the route that you took as you were driving? And that also allows it to do things like have uh, figure eight or, you know, th courses that loop back on themselves or what have you. Um, so it, it, to some degree, takes into account, you know, those, those serpentine motions, but you're still not wrong that it it's not going to be perfect. And and the other thing that, that where it falls down a lot is, you know, so we set up... Um, the, a couple of courses where there were obstacles off to the side. So maybe there were like cardboard building blocks or there was like one of the kids chairs, you know, one of those poofy chairs that everyone has for their kids. And a lot of times you would see a, a player, a computer player in the game, like inside the chair. You know what I mean? Like it didn't, it didn't do a good enough job of figuring out that's an obstruction that, that it shouldn't be driving in front of. Um, but nevertheless, it is it it is extremely well executed, and I cannot believe how cool this is. And apparently, if if I read it right, it was all done by it's like Velen Studios or something like that, which I think is some video game maker somewhere in upstate New York, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Albany and Troy, New York. And uh, and I've never heard of them before, but it looks like they did pretty much all the work on this. Um, and I went poking about their website and it looks like they really, really like C and C plus plus people, but it strikes me as the same as your early job, Marco, where it's like, see if we can C plus plus if we have to, <laughs> which is fine, but was very, very surprising to read for a video game, or at least it was surprising to me anyway. I was surprised they didn't get the Anki drive people. To yeah, exactly. This, right. This yep, is, yep. It's kind of, I mean, Pokemon Go was the same way. I forget what company that was, but like Nintendo's on the lookout for companies that have cool gaming ideas. And then they say, 
you know, join with us and you get to use our incredibly valuable properties. And then you get to have Lakitu as your little paint person. Is that who it was? It's not, they're not a toad person. Uh, you know, you took my joke paint. from me. You took my joke from me. I was going to say real time follow up from Jay Syracuse in the chat. <laughs> it is indeed, <laughs> it is indeed Lakitu. I'm, I couldn't think of the name. Yeah, he's not a, he's not a toad person. He's a little turtle. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm old. Forgive me. Anyway, yeah, like taking taking a game property, taking a game idea and putting Nintendo properties on top of it, and then allowing Nintendo to manage your creation of that game to make sure it's fun and be able to use their hardware and you know have access to their customer base that's willing to shell out a hundred bucks for this game thing. I don't know if you ever used the Labo stuff. Did you ever try that? No, I know of what you're talking about, uh, but no, I did not use it. So this is the is that that like cardboard thing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like physical. It's another same idea. Like you so say, you have a switch, and you can also buy these physical toys, essentially that interact with the switch in some way. It's not as impressive as like an AR type thing, but you could build these little moving things that work with the switch, and they looked fun and interesting. And I was just imagine kids destroying that cardboard, that very very expensive cardboard, but. You know, this is what Nintendo is the best at. Find things that might be fun and try them out. Yep, yep. I just, I cannot recommend this enough. It is super cool and everyone should try this at some point. Is it fun if you just get one or do you do you think you really will need two? It, it, it is fun with one. It would absolutely at least double the fun, if not, you know, more so uh, if if we had a second. But the problem is for us, we only have one Switch in the house. And right. I think that there's probably going to come a time that a second Switch will enter the house. But sitting here today, there's only one Switch. And it's understandable, but unfortunate that you it, it's a one-to-one pairing, like I said earlier, between Switch and cart. So we would have to, like, get Declan a, either a Switch or a Switch Mini, Switch Lite, whatever it's called, um, and, and a second car to pair with it. But... Um, but again, it's super cool. I, I haven't had enough time with it to be able to talk about some of the like other features it has, but I know that it has some amount of progression, both in terms of like, uh, stuff that the character can wear, but also in terms of the things that you can do. So as an example, um, right now, the only thing we can do is have sunshine or like, you know, basically the existing, um, the you know, atmosphere in the house, but you can, in the, in the game, you can make it rain or you can have your house underwater, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, so I'm looking forward to trying stuff like that. Uh, but either way, I, I really thought it was a super cool game and you should at least, even if you're not interested in video games at all, you should really, really, really seek out that, um, that trailer, which I've put in the show notes. It's only a couple of minutes and it is, it is, it gives you a really good idea of what it's like. And it is crazy, super cool. This is uh, interesting that you were just talking about Mario Kart because just last night as a way to distract myself from everything, I watched uh, <laughs> I watched a lot of speedrunning videos and a lot of these retro gaming dissection videos and I watched what I think is the sort of giant bloated monster version of a particular genre uh, where it describes a sub- subsection of the speedrunning world. And it usually, this genre of videos, it describes like person A got record, this record, then person B came back and beat their record, and person C was, you know, like, it's the kind of like the the horse race for who's going to beat whose record on, you know, in a speedrunning thing. This is a 47-minute video. Oh! Entirely, (laughs) entirely, in that format, entirely about speedrunners and Mario Kart 64. (laughs) Wow. And like I've watched the shorter videos uh, on uh, similar things of like here's the person who was trying to do a thing with the speed run and we thought this speed run would never be broken and look at this speed run in GoldenEye and uh, there's a lot of Nintendo speed runs I watch but anyway I was like how can you sustain this for 47 minutes and 
there you go. 47 minutes of, of speed running. It's, it is a fascinating video. It takes you on a journey. It, is it too long? Yes, it's too long. Right. But that's why I felt like it's, it's a fun version of this. It's like extended to the maximum. Like there's plenty of data there. It's just, I don't know if it's going to hold your attention to 47 minutes, but last night, again, I was looking for something to distract myself. I recommend watching it. I'm not going to spoil anything about the video. I recommend watching it because I feel like you have to go on the full 47 minute journey to be emotionally in the place where this video is trying to take you by the end. Uh, but if you just want to watch a bunch of people doing ridiculous things in Mario Kart 64, check it out.